the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about topics in the world and how we view them through our prism of Catholic social teaching, the dignity of the human person, family, work, the environment, the poor. Those are the perspectives and the prisms through which we view the topics in the world. We say, just do it. If you just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself better, then individually, we would be advancing our world to being more just and more compassionate. Tom, so I know we talked, I think, a week or two ago about one of the things for the summer, and you hadn't been doing too well in the <laughs> department of ice cream, because well, ice cream has to be a defining feature of summer. So how are you doing with ice cream? I'm a little bit better when I was in Atlanta. Right. Uh, I went out and uh, we were walking around. Uh, we had one free evening, so we went to Decatur, uh, which is sort of like a kind of a neat, funky sort of part of Atlanta, right. or I guess right. it's a suburb of Atlanta. And they have this incredible ice cream shop. So I told everybody, I said, I said, Monsieur Sullivan gave me homework, so I have to complete it. So uh, I went in and they had um, uh, peaches and cream ice oh. cream made locally. So. I had myself a nice big cup of peaches and cream ice cream, and it was it was delicious. So, so I so I have had one. Good. So, isn't am I correct? Isn't um, is, is George's nickname like the Peach State or something like that? Yes, yes, exactly. So, peaches is I mean that's like their you know how we have apples here in right. New York. They have peaches. Okay. <laughs> so okay. they have peach. They have peach everything. Let's see here: peach jelly, peach ice cream. So it was really very good. <laughs> good. Well, I'm glad, and it was. Um, I'm glad it was good. I'm glad you 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 enjoyed it, and it was um, good. I know you talked a little bit about a theme of the conference being trafficking. Were there any other things that were kind of part of that social action directors conference? Uh, you know, I, I would say uh, because we were in um, uh, in, in Atlanta this year, you know, there was a whole day where we kind of went uh, down to uh, uh, the Civil Rights Museum and to the Martin Luther King Memorial. So there was uh, a, you know, a breakout session that um, we actually had. Uh, actually, it was at the um, it's called the Like House, which is um, the for the historically black universities down there. It's 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 sort of like where um, the young people go for their spiritual direction. So okay. the uh, the director of of Lighthouse uh, gave us uh, a talk on Catholic social teaching uh, and race. It was really very very compelling, and and it was really uh, and it was great to go down, you know, and and see kind of this uh, the you know Lighthouse itself. It's named after I think uh, that Archbishop Like was a former Archbishop of um, of of Atlanta. He was a black man. Back, I think in the seventies, um, and uh, and and so we were able to go down and do that, and also Monsieur, you know, we 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 did traditionally. We heard from uh, local community groups that are organizing uh, in. Um, it, it it wasn't in in Georgia; it was in Tennessee, but they zoomed in, so we were able to kind of hear some of the community organizing they were doing. That too. Okay. So it was it was the traditional conference, but built around the subject of human trafficking. Okay. Um... 
All right. So um, that's, uh, I'm glad. You've gone to those conferences now for a few decades, haven't you? I have. I have. I think uh, I'm I'm sort of like when they, they keep me around, I'm sort of like the institutional memory of, I think that's why they keep me on the board. Right. <laughs> I'm the institutional memory of, of these conferences and of the, the roundtable. So I, I've been going since 1997. Uh, my right. first one was at Loyola in Chicago. So, uh, so, you know, they're really, they're, they're great places for people to kind of come and share, you know, best practices, talk about what's going on all over the, all over the country and, and kind of see, and it's interesting, you can see kind of what things are going on regionally and, and we're able to kind of share what's going on in our, our, our individual dioceses. So it's a good opportunity for, them. you know, Tom, I don't want to take any, I don't want to take things for granted. You know, uh, I think because we've spoken a lot about it for a number of years, when we talk about, you know, the gathering of social action directors. So maybe you could just give our listeners just a little bit of a sense. So, I mean, I think most of our listeners would know that, you know, in dioceses, you have uh, directors of religious education, you have teachers in schools, you may have social workers, you have that. But you know, this position of like a director of social action for a diocese, what does that position do? And with the understanding, that's not the same in every single place. Well, what kind of is their charge? What do they do in a diocese? Well, Monsignor, they generally, um, you know, they would work with and kind of correspond to a lot of um, the social issues that are going on in 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 and around the, the the church. So, for example, they may get involved with issues of racial justice. They might be involved with issues of labor. Um, that's an, another another area. Uh, they're also involved pretty often in community organizing and support for community organizing work. Um, they are often the uh, the um, office that's charged with um, kind of administering the Catholic campaign for human development from the United States Conference of Bishops. They often do education around Catholic relief services and kind of talking about the international component of what uh, Catholic charities and, 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 and what the church do. Um, they also uh, kind of educate on Catholic social teachings uh, in the parishes, in, in the schools, uh, sometimes in the seminaries. Uh, and, you know, and, and they would also uh, be the people who try to kind of get uh, people active on those teaching. So for example, a lot of times there's an advocacy component to their work. Um, They will kind of educate folks on Catholic social teachings. But then as Catholics, we know we not only have to kind of know about these things, but we have to do something. It's kind of what our charge is in just love. You know, we 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 kind of you know learn about these issues, but then we also try to encourage people to act on those issues and make the world more just and more compassionate. So sort of that's the charge of that of the of kind of the role. And as you said, it's very diverse. I mean People right. have very different responsibilities around the country, but it's kind of that that diversity in and around the social mission of the church that kind of they're given charge to kind of take that and make it active in their individual diocese. Great. Um, thank you very much. I think that was helpful for our listeners to give a sense of that, because, you know, while the work of Catholic Charities, I think, is fairly well known uh, <clears throat> in the services provided to children, the elderly sometimes immigrants and those who are hungry, those who are homeless. The social action work of the church is, I would say, not as well known as some of the others. So thank you for laying that out there. So let's go to our first guest. Our first guest is Brooke Ruffin, who is the director of engagement for Street 
uh, Grace, which is a faith-based organization uh, that collaborates with leaders, and it's a pro- providing a comprehensive path to end the sexual exploitation of, of minors. So, um, Rook, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. So, well, we always like to begin our conversation since uh, to our listeners, you're just a voice. Give them a little sense of your background and how you became engaged in the current work that you are doing. Wonderful. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Brooke Ruffin. I work with Street Grace and have been on the team for about six years. I actually found Street Grace as a volunteer. um, So I always love working with individuals just looking to get involved in the fight, not knowing exactly where they fit in. Um, I was previously a performer, did an equity contract uh, as Ariel and Voyage of the Little Mermaid. So it was quite a career shift for me there. Um, but did a lot of advocacy and public speaking for sexual abuse survivors uh, and found uh, that the Lord led me to anti-trafficking efforts in the Atlanta area and long-term wanted to be involved on the demand side um, to stop the problem before it happens, because we hear all of these stories of the turmoil that people have been through. So to be a part of preventing this type of exploitation can be really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. I think that Gave our listeners a pretty good sense of uh, what you doing. Did you like uh, being Ariel in Mermaids? I did. It's a lot of work. You do about five to seven shows a day. Was it on Broadway? No, this was in the, at the theme park in Orlando. Okay. In Little Mermaid. Well, that's great. Uh, that, is, that is great. So tell us a little bit about the organization that you're currently involved with, Street Grace. Street Grace is a nonprofit organization. As you mentioned, we are faith-based. We are birthed out of the faith community in Atlanta, Georgia, that decided to get together and that they needed to do something about the instance of trafficking in in the Atlanta area at the time in about 2008. Uh, Our work is dedicated to eradicating the commercial sexual exploitation of children. And we do this through evidence-based demand reduction strategies and utilizing policy and tech experts in the field. So last week on our show, we had somebody who spoke about the broader issues of, of, of trafficking, and you're focusing on a particular area. So for, this, for our listeners, tell us exactly, you know, the commercial exploitation of children, how does that show itself? How does it manifest itself? You want to focus on the Atlantic area, Atlanta area, that's perfectly fine. Uh, well, I think a lot of us in the U.S. Um, cling on to the the issue as if it is a their problem, that it's not happening here to our kids and in our neighborhoods and communities, when in fact it's much more domesticated than movies such as Taken would lead us to believe. Um, And I think we hang on to that because it makes us feel more safe. It makes us feel like the buyers are not our neighbors and our coaches and our teachers and our uncles. Um, So when we talk about the commercial sexual exploitation of children or CSEC, we're talking about the trafficking of our children here in the U.S. It used to be referred to as domestic minor sex trafficking, DMST. So you'll often hear that as well. Um, so we're talking about children who are sold either for money or for, uh, food, shelter, protection, for drugs to, um, 
fix that addiction need that they may or may not have. So a big wad of cash does not always have to be involved. We even know of a family uh, that was dropping their 14-year-old off of the car dealership to pay for their minivan bill once a month. Wow. Uh, Now, obviously, the sexual exploitation of any of a single child Mm -hmm. is bad. It, It is bad. But so, but so let me ask you, how big a problem is this? It is the fastest growing criminal industry today. Um, and a lot of that is because it is so lucrative. It's a $190 billion industry. And this is because our children are serving as a renewable resource. You can sell um, a, a bag of drugs once a night, but you can sell a 13 year old maybe 11 times that night. Um, so, it, and especially with the role that technology is playing in the lives of our youth, um, one in three girls and one in five boys are receiving unwanted online sexual solicitation. And that's a, that's a, how many of those like turn into actual exploitation and, and, and abuse? I know in the Atlanta area, about 300,000 children will be at risk for sexual exploitation a year. Uh, And I know I'm I'm pushing a little bit, Brooke. At risk doesn't mean they do it. Correct. But statistics are difficult with uh, things like sex trafficking, because, of course, like you said, if it was one child going through it, we would be doing the work. But it does not account for the same child being sold 11 times each night, right? So it, the statistics are are difficult and they are, of course, impactful, but are hard to grasp because um, if it's the five children, they may be paired with 57 buyers that week, right? So right. The, um, the amount is difficult to point a specific number to because of lack of reporting due to uh, the, the shame of it all, uh, people not reporting because they believe it was their choice. So they don't come forward as a victimized person, especially our young men. Right. There's too much pride and shame in the situation. And maybe they entered via what we call survival sex. So for food, shelter, protection. And so they see it as um, the bed that they made for themselves right. to speak. Right. And I, I was speaking with Brooke Ruffin, who is the director of engagement for Street Grace, a organization in Atlanta that is trying to um, deal with the awful uh, situation of the sex exploitation of of children. You did say you, when the one example you you gave of like a family dropping off their their child. Um, is in, in, in this situation, a fam, are the children's families usually involved in this? Yes, a very large percentage. Um, and youth are exploited because they are dependent on others for their primary needs. Right. Um, and of course their frontal lobes aren't fully developed. They're very susceptible to that manipulation, but families, especially you're dealing with parents who potentially grew up in a sexually exploitive environment, right. have a drug addiction that they have to, um, 
fulfilled to some degree. During COVID, we saw such a spike of familial sex trafficking because the parents were under more financial stress. Mm. Um, And of course, addictions became worse because everybody was spending more time online, watching more pornography. Everything was elevated and we were all um, secluded in a way that made this type of exploitation worse because normally our children will have seven to eight hours a day where they're safe at school away from their exploiter. Right. Um, so one of the one of the uh, things that you you mentioned about about um, street grace is that at least one of its focuses is um, is utilizing kind of evidence based strategies to to reduce demand. Say a little bit about that. So currently we are utilizing artificial intelligence um, and we did this to gather our own data. It's called Transaction Intercept, uh, where we post decoy ads online. And then the perpetrators are then talking to um, a technology platform instead of an actual child. So we'll address what they are looking to purchase, how much they are looking to purchase uh, it for, for how much time. We're gathering a lot of buyer demographics, which is great uh, in to aid future prevention efforts. Now we are uh, working with BBDO advertising and volunteers from Microsoft to turn this platform into something that law enforcement can then use um, to aid in their efforts. It removes the limitations that manually run sting operations present. Has it, um, has, have you been using it for a while? Yeah, the law enforcement platform is new and launching this summer. Uh, yeah. So but we've been working with law enforcement to develop it. So basically we had this technology, it was great. And then working with law enforcement to see how could this best serve you um, so that we can be a part of that. And uh, another arm of the evidence base is that we are survivor led. We have a survivor advisory council that uh, looks over all of our educational materials and our initiatives so that our work is seen through the lens of lived experience. Our legislation that is developed is also um, advised on and led by that Survivor Advisory Council so that we are putting forth bills that will uh, harshen the punishments for traffickers and buyers and aid survivors successful reentry into society. And we would not know what laws traffickers and buyers are using as loopholes without our survivors. We wouldn't know what laws are holding them back from thriving in a life after exploitation. Um, so really not just inviting them to the table, but allowing them to lead these conversations. So I know in, in some circumstances, uh, no, I'm sorry. I mean, there's conversations a variety of places of the decriminalization of sex work, et cetera. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would I be fair to draw the conclusion that Street Grace wouldn't be a a big supporter of that? Since we are dealing with children, uh, we are not a part of that conversation. Um, The amount of exploitation that can happen within that is, is dangerous and disheartening. But as an organization, since we are child focused, uh, we're not a part of that conversation nationally. Okay. Um, Okay. So in in your work in this area, have you seen much change over the past number of years in, in what the reality is in this area? I would say the 
biggest thing that has changed is the time in which it takes a perpetrator to get material and access to our children. It used to be that we had the worst corner in a city for uh, sex trafficking and as it was referred to then, prostitution. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, now, since it is occurring online, it can happen within 24 hours. And it is so linked to our teens' mental health crisis. Um, so we have teen boys that are coming into contact with somebody and then within 18 hours uh, taking their own life because of the sextortion that is happening. So it used to be somebody would have to build a rapport over four months with an individual in order to get them to meet them physically somewhere or to send them a photo. And now it is so normalized to be sexting within the first week of a teen relationship and to uh, be posting these photos that the sextortion and the manipulation happen over a much shorter period of time. You would say, and think one of the things I read is that it's a $290 million illegal industry in major New York cities, major major U.S. cities. In major U.S. cities, correct. And that's because of the affluent income. Anywhere where there's a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of trafficking. And is it, Primarily an urban phenomena? There's going to be a higher density of it just because there's a a more dense population. Anywhere where there's an affluent income, you're going to have an instance of trafficking because the buyers have to have that disposable income to hide the purchases from their family. Right. So um, I know what you're talking about using AI, working with the police, a new platform, but Are there things our listeners can do to make a positive impact in this awful reality? Definitely. So we um, have a strong base of faith partners. Uh, And so if there are any interested parties that would like to get your church involved, we offer training for your congregations um, to recognize, report and respond to sexual exploitation. We have a keeping kids safe in the digital age program, which helps parents have these awkward conversations here in the U.S. We have this notion of the talk and we're asking you to have a series of awkward conversations at the kitchen table so that your children aren't finding the wrong answers online. Um, That has an associated handbook uh, where a survivor's gone through and shared her own story. She was trafficked when she went to her grandparents' house. Um, So it's very important to have a template for those conversations because this is a dark, difficult subject matter. We also have the Youth Leadership Academy, which is a seven-week program for our youth um, because we can give them statistics all day, but what's going to really make a life on life impact is um, that confidence, that leadership. So instilling uh, where their worth comes from, who their value can be determined by is essential for our teens and what they're facing on a day-to-day basis these days. Um, So all of these can be delivered virtually. We also have them translated into Spanish. So it's a wonderful resource uh, just to arm your congregation with the knowledge they need to protect themselves and their communities from this type of exploitation. Do you operate outside of the Atlanta area? Yes, we have um, an office on the ground in Texas and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Um, but we do operate nationally. So we're leading trainings for churches all over uh, and have several initiatives that have a national presence. So if you you mentioned some things that individuals could do and things like that. Is there things that you would like to see um, from a broader societal or a policy point of view to impact this issue? 
I would like to see more people um, take the stage and be leaders uh, in this fight. I think so often it is a difficult subject matter that we hide away from it and we've given it the perfect environment to fester. It's a lot like mold. If you allow it to have this dark anonymous environment, it's going to flourish, but all it needs is uh, a light shined on it. And I think that churches have uh, such a wonderful opportunity and are already established leaders in their communities. So being comfortable having those awkward conversations, having your place of worship be the place where children are getting their um, sex education so that they are prepared and that they aren't finding um finding it in the shady corners of the internet, frankly, and that they know that their value is determined by their relationship with God and that they can be leaders in their schools because these conversations are going to happen. The videos are going to be shared and they need to be prepared how to be the odd man out and how to be the leader in that room. So in, in, I mean, we talked in the beginning that sometimes it's the families themselves that tragically are engaging or exploiting their children. And, or, but what you're also suggesting is that given the, the availability of the internet and things like that, sometimes kids get exploited without their families being aware of it. Correct. And frankly, children can be exploited without them knowing it. We had somebody who is collecting photos from 13-year-old girls and just selling it to um, a child pornography website. Uh, so the ability for children to take photos of themselves and to produce child pornography and share it so willingly is uh, creating quite the epidemic. And a lot of times, especially if these children are staying with their grandparents while their parents are working, we're not prepared. Uh, we're, the guardians are not prepared for what technology platforms um, that all of the children are on. So we definitely advise parents to be on the same apps that your kids are on. Um, Download this keeping kids safe in the digital age handbook, Uh, schedule a training for your kids, friends, parents, just so that you're kind of arming your circle with this knowledge. Rook Ruffin, you have been so generous with your time. You've made me a lot smarter about this and I'm sure you've made our listeners smarter before I leave. Before I let you go, is there kind of one final message that you would like to leave with our listeners? Um, Yes, it would just be that everybody has a role in this fight. If you're hearing this and it's touching your heart, then that means that God is leading you to have um, have this involved in your life. Children are priceless and we all have a role in our community where there's somebody that's needing us to stand up, that's needing us to, um, to, to voice this education and to arm them with the knowledge they need. Is there a website where people can get more information? Yes, if you go to streetgrace.org. And just hit resources. That's where the Keeping Kids Safe in the Digital Age Handbook is. And we're constantly posting online trainings available as well. Thank you so much. Brooke Ruffing, Director of Engagement at Street Grace. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through our perspective of Catholic social teaching. Um, And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We look at how we do that societally in policies, programs, big issues. And we look at it, how we do it individually in the way we live our own lives. Um, Tom, I know you were just down at the social action directors meeting. Um you know, since they look at a lot of things going on in the country from the point of view of justice and social justice, what would you say the mood of people were? What's their feeling about what's going on in the country at the moment, society, you know, looking at it from the prism of, you know, justice and and uh, policies that kind of reflect enhancing the the human person? I think I see you know, they're, they're, um, I think that they feel that we have much work to do. Uh, I, it's kind of interesting. I think that many of them have been in this work a long time, you know, and they've been in this work for a while. So I think they're feeling themselves that, um, you know, that, that a lot of the issues that we kind of thought were, were settled or handled, um, require fresh eyes and, and fresh work. I mean, and, and I think this kind of came up because, you know, we went over to, um, you know, the Civil Rights Museum and to where Martin Luther King, you know, grew up. And and I think we were kind of looking and I think that hopefulness um, of integration and that hopefulness of of people just kind of getting along and all that hope that, that Dr. King kind of fostered, I think there was kind of a feeling that perhaps, you know, that's not where we're at today as a country. And I think so. I think that there's a, the mood was we have to put our, our, our shoulder to the grindstone and really get busy because there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. And maybe issues that we thought were kind of settled or handled in the past have, right. have risen up anew. So I think that that's kind of where they're at mentally. Okay. All right. So, Tom, why don't we go to our next guest? Our next guest is Professor... Leonard Davis, who is the Distinguished Professor in the Department of Disability and Human Development at the University of Chicago. And so I'm delighted to welcome Professor Davis to Just Love. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, I think you said University of Chicago. I'm actually at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Oh, okay. I did. I said it wrong. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. You're not the first person who's okay. used those two places. Yeah. I, 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 I apologize. So give our listeners a little bit of a sense about how you kind of got into um, the type of study and work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up uh, in the Bronx. Um, with two parents who were both profoundly deaf. And I, um, I grew up, my first words were in sign language and I grew up signing. 
So I, it was something that I, the idea of disability and deafness was something that was kind of with me from the start. I'm a coder, child of deaf adults. You know, there was a movie that just won the Academy Award a couple of years ago for, about being coder, a coder. But um, but I went, but I went to co- I, I I was lucky enough to get into a, a scholar, get a scholarship from Columbia University, and I went there and studied English literature for a long time, and uh, never occurred to me that disability was something that you could study. It was just something that I grew up with, and it wasn't until around 1990 that I went to my first uh, CODA conference and met a whole bunch of people who were also. Codas, but also some of whom were academics, and I didn't realize that I could study this subject. So that's when I started studying it. And I wrote a book called Enforcing Normalcy, which was one of the books that kind of started disability studies in the university. Well, that's that's kind of a so I got to ask you, where in the Bronx did you grow up? I grew up uh, East East Tremont, uh, the Morrisania section of the Bronx. Are you from the Bronx? <laughs> uh, Bainbridge and Gun Hill. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> right, right, right down the block from Woodlawn Cemetery and mm-hmm. Montefiore Hospital. Right. Well, I still live in the Bronx, so uh, oh, do you? not far from Woodlawn Cemetery. Right. Um, anyway, so um, so tell. I mean, we're coming up to the 33rd anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disability Act. Um, tell us. A little of history of that and um, how that has made a change, hasn't made a change in life with people with disabilities. Yeah, well, um, I think that one way to think about this is what was life like for people with disabilities in the past before the uh, ADA and before a number of other kind of uh, laws that were passed that, in relationship to disability. And basically, if you were a person, let's say in 1965, who had a disability, you were pretty much isolated. You had no rights. Um, there was no accessibility. You couldn't get on a bus. You couldn't get on a train. You couldn't, many people couldn't drive. My parents, for example, who were deaf, uh, really couldn't drive because the insurance rates for deaf people were so high that they couldn't afford it as working class people. Right. But the iron- irony of that is that the insurance rates were very high, but the accidents rates for for deaf drivers were very low, better than for hearing drivers, because they had to pay so much attention to what was going on. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, they, you were isolated. It was difficult to have a job. You were discriminated against in so many different ways. It was, but no one paid attention to it because no one really paid attention to disability. Um, you know, there are the occasional people who might feel sorry for someone or want to do a charity or who, uh, you know, donated to a telethon, a Jerry Lewis telethon or something. But basically, you were a person living in America without any rights, without any privileges, and very, very heavily discriminated against. So if you think about that, then you realize that this was something that really needed to be redressed. Um you know, there was the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that basically gave, I mean, reiterated the rights of people of color uh, to, you know, to have rights. And, but there was nothing the equivalent of that for people with disabilities. And in 1969, I think it was the, uh, there was some legislation attached to the Civil Rights Act and also to the Education Act that gave rights to women. 
um, Title IX, but nothing for people with disabilities. So you can imagine that for people with disabilities and activists who were part of that movement, um, there was a push, you know, seeing how the Civil Rights Act worked to try to get rights for people with disabilities. And I could give you kind of a quick summary of some of the things that happened, if that's what you're interested in. That'd be in. great. I think yeah. that'd be enlightening, certainly to me. And I also think it'd be very uh, enlightening to our listeners. Sure. So um, what happened was that there had been a Rehabilitation Act for, for soldiers coming back from World War I, but it had never been updated. Uh, and especially with the soldiers coming back from Vietnam, um, they needed to sort of like update the act. So there was the Rehabilitation Act of, of 1973. And that act provided certain things for soldiers coming back. You know, you remember, you know, the what was the movie Born on the Fourth of July and right. uh, Coming Home, all those movies about the Vietnam vets with disabilities. Um, but in, tucked into that act was a little 40-word section. It's called Section 504. And actually, even to this day, nobody knows who wrote it. You know how these bills have hundreds yeah. of pages. In, but this little tiny section called 504 basically said, like, if you have a disability, you can't be discriminated against. And it was federal legislation. Right. So that created a kind of opening and for, for uh, disability um, legislation. And, for five, and that happened under Nixon. And for five years, they started writing the regulations because I don't know if your listeners know this, but when you can pass a law, but it really doesn't do anything unless there are regulations that are associated with it. So they were they started writing regulations and for five years they wrote the regulations, but they were never implemented. And you went through Nixon got uh, kicked out. Uh, Ford took over. Jimmy Carter came in. And still five years after that, there was no there was no redress for people with disabilities. At the time, there was a guy named Califano who was the head of, I think, HEW. And that's when disability, um, that's when disability uh, uh, activism really started because people were saying, like, let's get 504 working. Let's have people with disabilities have rights. And uh, they, they couldn't do that uh, because Califano was dragging his feet. So there was, it was the first nationwide demonstrations that culminated in one of the biggest acts of, you know, many people don't know this, but one of the biggest acts of civil disobedience in the history of the United States. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, hundreds of people occupied a federal building and wouldn't leave for 40 days. And there's no building that was ever occupied for 40 days uh, in the history of the United States. And after the 40 days, Califano relented and 504 came in. But still, even though 504 had all these regulations, there still was no equivalent of the civil of the of the Civil Rights Act. So that's when the ADA comes about. And in 1990, George Bush signs the the um, the, the the ADA, and it becomes law. And the reason it's so important is because it it really did uh, create a kind of equality in America. Because, I mean, we don't even think about this now, but like every time you get on a bus that kneels, every time you uh, you cross the street and you see, uh, you know, every I mean, every street in the United States now has a depressed, uh, you know, thing for people. Right. with, And uh, so that that's there. Uh, 
public transportation has to be accessible. Uh, the telephone system is accessible for deaf people. Uh, every major public accommodation and store, you know, on me, essentially Main Street becomes a place that gets accessible to people with disabilities. And that is totally the result of this act. So, um, Professor Davis, again, to help our um, listeners understand the scope of this, mm-hmm. is there a is there a definition of disability uh, in different category? How what what do we can what does that act consider? You know, a disability. That's, that's a really good question because it, it's a fuzzy area, and it and it got the act into trouble actually. Okay. So. According to the uh, the original act from 1990, it defined disability in three ways and in interesting ways. One is a limitation in one or more life activity. Got it. Okay, so uh, uh, one or more life activity. The second part is you may not have actually uh, a, dis- a, a, a limitation in one or more life activity, but you might have a history of having had, having had it. Okay. So like in the past, you had it and you're being discriminated against now because of this thing you had in the past. And the third, which is really interesting, is is that you don't have a disability, but you're perceived as having one. Mm-hmm. So like the example from the period would be that you're a gay man and uh, people think you have HIV and discriminate against you for that. So those are the three prongs, they call it, of the definition of disability. Um the problem was that after the law got passed, there, you can imagine because it's a complicated definition, um, uh, there were a lot of legal challenges. And I'll just give you one example because it's sort of an interesting one. Um, there was a woman who went to a dentist, a woman who was HIV positive, went to the dentist. And the dentist, you know how you fill out stuff before right. you go to the dentist. And so she filled out and said she was HIV positive. And the dentist said, I'm not going to... I'm not going to um, work on you unless we go into a hospital and in a, a completely controlled environment. So she sued under the ADA because she said she was being discriminated against being HIV positive. It's not a disease, but it, you know, um, and however, in order to prove, remember, because remember, you can't say the word disability necessarily. You have to say a limitation in one or more life activity. If you're HIV positive, you don't have any limitations in what you're doing except that you can't have unprotected sex. So she had to claim in order to win in the court that in order to, that she she was being discriminated against because she couldn't have unprotected sex. Okay. So it got to be very complicated. So in 1990, in uh, 2007, they revised the ADA and they got rid of that three-pronged definition right. and they basically just said disability. And they had a list of a million disabilities. And that's what that's what we're dealing with today. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, if we will look a little bit to the future, and I I think the couple of examples that you gave is is true, and I I can tell you, uh, you know, there are days when I'm crossing the street, I decide I'm going on that that uh, that, that curb cut because it's easier than then stepping up to the uh, mm-hmm. sidewalk. So, uh, you know, yeah. and but, but it's interesting to me because, you know, I periodically am looking, actually just last Sunday, I was on the corner and I saw a person coming down the street in a wheelchair and they went down and got across the street and went up. 
And you realize, now that's not a little thing, but it can seem like little, but it's life-changing for that individual. Absolutely. And and the other thing that's really interesting about that is there's something that came out of disability uh, research called universal design. So the idea of universal design is that, yeah, it would benefit someone with a disability, but it would benefit a lot of other people. So you look at those curb cuts, you know, when you get to be a certain age, sometimes it, it helps. You're not disabled, but it helps to not have to step up. You're yeah. a bicycle rider. Very good. You're a mother or a father. Uh, with a hold couple. on, I, Professor, I got to stop you. I don't want, uh, we, we've given the bicycle riders lanes. Stay in their lane. Stay off my sidewalk. Okay, I, I I thought the same thing as I was saying that. But what about what about mothers and fathers with yeah. strollers? Strollers, yeah, yeah. So it so the idea is that uh, you know a good architectural design will benefit everybody. You know, like uh, there's just one small example. Like the do- doorknobs are hard to open right. if they're circular for people with arthritis. So right. they now have the doorknob that is like a lever. Right. But that benefits everybody, you know, yep. uh, you can use your elbow to open it instead of your hand if you're carrying groceries. So universal yep. design it c- kind of comes out of uh, disability rights. Well, actually, I was, you know, I was at the apartment of a friend last night and in the bathroom, in the shower, in the tub, there are bars and, you know, it helps everybody. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily only help somebody who is, you know, officially disabled. And you're bringing up a really interesting point because uh, many people don't realize this, but something like like one out of five people is disabled. So, you know, that's 20% of the population. Right. And I can see, because I can see you on Zoom and your listeners can't, that you're of a certain age. And so am I. I'm old and decrepit. So (laughs) I just... the point is that, you know, this hard, fast line between disabled and non-disabled yeah. is kind of an illusion because as we age, we're all going to have one disability or another. Yeah. And, you know, um, and, and therefore building the environment so that it's it, so that it works for everybody is really a big help. Um, and uh, um, even we use the term within disability studies of of uh that we say pe- people who are, are temporarily abled. Right. So if you think about it that way, rather than thinking about disability as a disaster or a, uh, right. as a, as a calamity, if you think about it as something that people can pass through, uh, go into, go out of, right. it's a normal part of being human. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, within the Catholic tradition, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Uh, you know, what was one of the things that made Jesus, Jesus, he cured people and he right. had, disabled people so it's very much part of the of the tradition yeah yeah so um you've been generous with your time but let me ask you one final question i mean obviously there's been a lot of tremendous progress that has been made but what do you see as a couple of the things that we still are on the horizon that we should be paying attention to to even advance further well there are a few things. One, one, one thing I would say is just literally from the ADA, there was a couple of uh, clauses built into that act. One was that Amtrak <clears throat> said that they couldn't comply with the act right away. So they were given 20 years to comply and they're still not. Amtrak can't even get the trains to run on top <laughs> of people without disabilities. So, right. I mean- <laughs> so they, they still, you know, 35 years later, all the stations in the United States are not accessible. Okay. Um, 
but also I think, you know, the shift over to the internet and to, um, to using computers in many people don't realize it, but you know, many websites are not accessible to blind people. A lot of YouTube videos are not captioned, uh, TV streaming. I mean, that whole world where we're live, we're starting to live inside the internet, that world has to be made more comfortable for yeah. people, all kinds of people, and including um, university library websites and all of that. Yeah, and, and I get, you know, it's interesting. You brought this up. This is just me speaking. You know, probably, well, 30 years ago or 33 years ago, um, the internet wasn't what it was today. Social media wasn't what it is today. So it probably seems to me as, every new technology or every new whatever it is comes on, it's probably, you know, usually it's probably not going to be easily usable, accessible for people with disabilities because they just want to get it going. But then it's got to be examined to figure out how it is made accessible or usable. That's right. Um, And and we're going to face that challenge. They're still writing regulations. Uh, for the ADA, every year they have more regulations that right. they're that they're coming up with. Sometimes people are annoyed by it. Um, yeah. You know, con- I just talked to a contractor about uh, accessible bathrooms and all of that. Um, but but it, it you know one day if that contractor becomes disabled or his parents or his right. child, then it pays off. Yeah. So Professor Leonard uh, Davis from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for sharing with us your expertise. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, You know, as we are getting right, I would say, in the middle of summer, if you consider July and August to be the two, you know, basically core months of summer. Um, And, you know, I hope that all of our listeners have had a little bit of time to relax, take a little bit of time off. Um, And I hope that um, in August coming up uh, this upcoming week, you continue to get a little bit of time off. I know the world has changed in two ways. One, you know, nobody was ever taking whole months off anymore, you know, be pre-COVID. And now with COVID, people are spending a lot more time working from home. So I think it might be interesting to kind of figure out how, in fact, um, summer vacations are going with people maybe not in the office as much. So they're out of the office. You know how that plays. And again, I think some of the things to, to think about is, you know, previously, if you were home, you were home. I mean, yeah, you could call in, you could do things. But during COVID, if you were home, you were working from home. So now if you're on vacation and at home, you know, I wonder if you still think you might be working because you were working during COVID. I don't know what the what the answer is to that, but I think it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. But I do like summer, I think. And for, for my work, there at least tends to be less work at night so that that creates a little bit of a of a break, even though, you know, days are busy and it's good. So listen, to all listeners, thank you for being with us on Just Love. I hope you do it. That you just love God, you just love your neighbor, you just love yourself. Because if you do that, you'll make our world more compassionate, you'll make it more just. And then the big issues that we discuss on Just Love will also be impacted a little bit if a lot of individual people did the right thing. Thanks for being with us. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.